Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. You're listening to Ruthie's Table 4 in partnership with Montclair. Ask Ray Fines about Carrie Mulligan, and he will tell you she's a brilliant actor and was a uniquely brilliant partner in their movie, The Dig. Ask Lauren Michaels about her hosting Saturday Night Live, and he will say she was one of the best in almost 50 years. Ask David Hare, the writer, and Robert Fox, the producer, of their play Starlight, and they will talk about her killer ambition for authenticity and excellence and her kindness to everyone involved. Today, 24 hours after being nominated for an Academy Award for Best Actress in the movie Maestro, she is here in the River Cafe kitchen cooking scallops and sage with River Cafe executive chef Sean Owen. And I know that when this morning is over and all of you ask me about Carrie Mulligan, absolutely and for sure, the answer will be, I love her. <laughs> so, so nice. So, Carrie, you just were cooking mm-hmm. a recipe, which I would love you to read for scallops, and uh, then we'll talk about everything. Eight medium scallops. Olive oil, sea salt and freshly ground pepper, one tablespoon salted capers prepared, half a bunch of sage leaves, stalks removed, one lemon. Brush a frying pan with a little oil and place over high heat. When smoking, add the scallops, season with a little salt and pepper and cook for two minutes on one side. Turn the scallops over and immediately add the capers and sage leaves plus a little extra olive oil so the sage leaves fry. Cook for a further two minutes, shaking the pan constantly. Squeeze the juice of the lemon and serve. Get the pan really hot. Yeah. And put the scallops around the edge and sear them. And then quickly check in a tiny minute more. I was trying to think about a scallop and thinking about what's delicious about a scallop. Is it a texture? Or is it because it's a very delicate, sweet I think it's the sweetness, because I'm funny with texture, some things, and kind of, yeah, I I think it's the sweetness of them. Yeah. And usually a pretty good sauce, right? Yes, exactly, exactly. So how long is this then? I reckon two or three minutes on each side. And then that's it? Yeah. Oh, well, yeah. And then squeeze a bit of lemon in now. Good old generous amounts of olive oil, isn't there? Yeah. In every stage. I love that, though. Well, we're on pints of it here. Yeah. But it's very good for you. Yeah. Yeah. Delicious. Something like oh, that. Amazing. Yeah, easy. Easy. I mean, like, relatively. <laughs> yeah. It's about getting the right amount of colour on. Yeah. And letting them sit. And yeah. then, um, you know, you can put, instead of lemon juice, you can put vinegar. Yeah. Instead of capers, you can put anchovies. Instead of um, sage, you can put basil. That's delicious. Cool. Oh, it's so good. Thanks. Thank you so much. So having cooked it, what was that like? Oh, it was so... um, Well, it's one of those things that I I would have... I'd love to do at home, but I feel like you need to do it when people are already there because you want to give it, you know, to people straight away. 
I wouldn't have the confidence to do that, but I think I would have a go at it now. Good. Um, I think it's about having really good scallops. And I always love when you actually are in a kitchen, you see how much olive oil goes and everything. <laughs> a little bit of olive oil is actually a lot of olive oil. Yeah, we use. Yeah. And so when you say that you, you would like to do it for dinner, people mm. coming to dinner. Mm. But then there is that separation, isn't there, where you're cooking and they're there. Do you like to cook around people or do you like well, we, to have everything? Yeah. Our house, we have, um, we. it's like a farmhouse kitchen. Mm. So we have a big, we don't have like a cooking island or a separate, ki- it's sort of a one big oh, room. Yeah. So we have a big table. It was an old chemistry lab table <gasps> and that's in the middle of the room. And then, so everything kind of, you cook around people. My husband is more... He does it more than, like, he does all the big event cooking, like mm. Christmases and, you know, Sunday roasts and things like that. I'll do, if we've got, you know, 10 people, I'll do, like, a big stew or a big casserole or something like that. But he's he's good at knocking stuff up. Like, we have barely anything in the fridge and he can make something out of that. Whereas I need a yeah, very clear order recipe. And yeah, clear. Order, yeah, yeah. You have cooked on stage. Yes. Because, was it National Theatre? Uh, it Starlight? was the... Yeah. No, it was, it? A, it was West End. What was, was it? It was first in West End. Yeah, it was first yeah. in the West End, yeah. David was telling me this morning about cooking spaghetti bolognese yeah. on, on stage, and he was saying that Stephen Daldry, being Stephen Daldry, insisted on having a chef come from somewhere who was one of the great chefs yeah. to tell me about cooking on stage. Was it the first time you'd ever had to cook on stage? Yeah. And you... I think it was I the only time I've had to eat on stage. Or eating on stage, yeah. really. Yeah, because I would I would cook it in the first half and I would eat it in the second mm. half. What was it like? It was a very basic, but there was a musicality to the way mm. so much of... It was cooking, it was one thing, but also fitting it in because the, she's cooking in what turns into an enormous row. And so much of the physicality of the cooking was in the sort of smashing of garlic and mm. chopping and you know so I had to be cooking but also furious but mm. also controlled that I didn't cut my finger off yeah. whilst yeah. I was furious um yeah. so and there was a lot of kind of comedy to you know the way that Bill would come over and sort mm. of glance and judge at the way that it was being cooked and you know putting the oil in first or not putting the oil in that was one of the little gags and but yeah, I, and the theatre would fill with the smell right. of cooking. and So I used to say to anyone who was coming to see it, particularly my dad, yeah. you have to eat before you <laughs> before, come. Because yeah. if you come and you watch a play that's I mean, it's like two and a half, three yeah. hours long, yeah. you know, and you're hungry, and you you're going to hate it. And that's yeah. so unfair of us. <laughs> and was it for real or was it mostly theatre? Was it? The I think it was, it was totally edible. Yeah. I mean, yeah. it probably wasn't great yeah. but it was you know I ate it yeah. and it was tasted fine to me yeah. yeah and what about eating on stage when I did it in New York I was pregnant yeah and I did go through a phase of feeling the incredibly crowd. unwell and yeah. nothing was good to eat so for a while it wasn't I was taking very small nibbles in the second half but no generally I kind of loved it and in film is there are also scenes of you eating yes in drive yes in the diner yes. and and not eating yes. and so most recently in Maestro which mm. I saw the opening night and mm. your phenomenal great Thanks. movie and and very compelling you know I grew up um with the Bernsteins you know I didn't know them mm. but I mean as as major figures mm. in our lives from mm. not just West Side Story and his concerts but they're 
their involvement in, in um, social politics, for which they were hugely maligned, which mm. was unfair by Tom Wolfe mm. for the radical chic. Yeah. Um, because, and especially your character, Felicia, was uh, really involved in, in the civil rights struggle, mm. in the Vietnam War, and mm. as a character, I thought, that it wasn't so. What it wasn't really that much in the film, but no. she was a formidable. She was, woman. and and it was at one point a whole radical chic scene. Um, oh, there was. Yeah, yeah. But I think um, you know the thing. The script evolved over f- yeah, five years. Sure, so, sure. Um, but yeah, and she was. And actually, when I went to I went to Chile and I met her family there, and mm. they talked about you know she was active from a young age, from when mm. she was a teenager mm. in Santiago. She was. Um, very I wonder whether they were under Pinochet. Were they, I wonder whether he was there then in Chile. Would that have been before? I think before. Yeah. 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 Um, but she was very. Um, but she was a real homemaker. Mm-hmm. You know, she she didn't cook. I don't think. I think she had yeah. Julia Vega. She had people in her her life that were. But she everything was. They called her the living the dining room at the um, apartment of the Dakota, the French restaurant, because every time anyone came, it was beautifully kind of table. Every the tablescape was unbelievable. The flowers that were brought in, and I think every kind of environment where she was a host was very mm. kind of beautifully put on. And she talks about um, being responsible for the kitchen of life, and yes. that everything was you know it was ordering the best produce and ordering the best flowers and ordering you know that was a big part of her life particularly in New York mm. also upstate I think but in New York that was a big part of her kind of mm. she loved fostering yeah. this kind of beautiful environment what was the filming like what, what was the experience of of doing that movie Did it was you, amazing I mean yeah. it was um it was the closest I think to a part that I had played I I, I always sort of felt like I had played you know, Nina and the Seagull mm-hmm. and, um, you know, Kira and Skylight and, and doing this monologue, Girls and Boys, I'd had these kind of kind of epic roles on stage. And I felt when I read Felicia that she had that breadth, mm-hmm. that she had mm-hmm. that kind of, you know, it felt like a kind of Chekhov role. Mm-hmm. It felt like she's got this huge journey and she starts, and she's actually not dissimilar to Nina in some ways mm-hmm. because she does start as this, actress with this burning ambition and and is disillusioned and you know driven to you know uh to well if uh, in my opinion not madness but driven to a sort of to a completely different place by the end of the story and having become a completely different person and I feel like Felicia really has that huge you know she come she came to New York you know bright as a button and full of hope and ambition and you really do get a sense of her being worn down by yeah. her experience. Yeah. Um, so just the, the character on its own was amazing. The way that Bradley works is so unique and so... Um, and I loved it, a completely different experience, nothing like I'd ever done before, completely, yeah. you know, and I think because he's in it as well, but, you know, the most amazing set where you don't feel like you're on a film set, mm-hmm. you feel like you're walking on stage. Did- and that was right where up my alley. Where, where did you film? We did shot. You we shot in Tanglewood. Yeah. Um, for the first week, which we, was amazing. Yeah. Um, then we shot in New York, 
And then we were on a soundstage in Brooklyn for a minute. And then we had a break and then we shot in Ely, Ely Cathedral. And yeah. uh, we shot in a soundstage in, in London as well. Yeah. And I, in terms of, again, about eating and food and nourishment, this is a character who wastes away, who yeah. starts disappearing. Yeah. And, and the way you conveyed her fragility and his emotions uh, dealing with you know, her husband's, the effect, well, mm. dealing with the effect on the family. Mm. And so to see this strong woman in the beginning that you played, and then how was that for you when when having to mm. show someone dying, yeah. you know, of a terrible disease? Yeah, it was, um, I think, you know, we, we, we shot her younger stuff right at the beginning of the shoot and we jumped straight to a scene after she's diagnosed with cancer mm. um and it was the first time i think i played anyone over a span of so many years mm. so she was the first week it was sort of a younger wig and black and white and and then the following monday i had prosthetics mm. on and um i think I, I was surprised, actually. I thought that there would be a lot more. I'd have to, like, map it a lot more. But it was interesting once I was in the prosthetics and the costume of that point in her life. It's funny what it does looking at yourself in the mirror when you, you know, we did the makeup for when she's right at the end of her life. Hmm. It took about four and a half hours and was prosthetics and lots of painting in and, and these incredible contact lenses that took out the sort of white around my eyes and... Um, and when I had the headscarf on and, mm. you know, you look in the mirror and you do yeah. feel different. It is an odd thing to look at. Um, also because we weren't trying to make her look, I wasn't trying to look like Felicia because Felicia mm. isn't a well-known mm -hmm. face in the way that Bradley needed to look like Lenny. We, I just looked like myself. And so, you know, I remember saying to Duncan, who's doing my prosthetics and Sean Grigg, makeup artist, I said, is this basically a time machine like yeah. you know without the illness before the mm. illness is this essentially mm. you know and I do look exactly like my mom <laughs> in the, yeah in the in the palm court yeah. you know I look yeah. exactly like my mom does um and so it was a kind of interesting yeah the whole thing was very interesting but the when it came to the sick stuff it was a lot of it was based on Bradley's experience of his father um yeah. who had cancer and passed away with cancer so and I knew that um you know, some of the detail that had been written in, folding mm -hmm. up the napkins yeah. um, was something that Bradley's dad did. Um, and lots of it was, so lots of, I felt constantly aware of him. And and then also when people would see me in the makeup and I think, you know, if, if you've had anyone in your life who's been through it's mm -hmm. an illness that has affected them like that physically and visibly, um, you know, I remember an AD sort of like, bursting into tears because yeah. she just sort of it reminded yeah. her too much of someone that she mm. loved and so I felt just really determined to not to get it right but also that I, if there was something about the sort of general sense of everybody by that point we just had the most incredible crew they were so amazing it really felt like that, that didn't when you walked on set it wasn't like <clears throat> this actor has this hard thing to do it was like mm. oh this person's this not is, well yeah and that yeah. was an incredible kind of Feeling and that's how the set felt that whole week when we shot. Did you all those eat? Things. No, you didn't eat. What no. was that like? I, I mean, I ate at home and I ate, mm. but when I was at work, no, no, I just, just didn't. Yeah, yeah. 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 Um, because there was, you know, 
And I remember the phys- the way that she, I remember Mark Bridges, our costume designer, brought this little shawl that goes over her shoulders when she's receiving visitors. And it's so, it was mm. my grandmother. My grandmother had dementia. She didn't, but she did lose lots of weight and she did mm. get, you know, as she was unable to feed herself, you know, she, it was, you know, was constantly trying to get her to intake nutrition. But I remember the, the way her shoulders kind of came forward and it was so highlighted by this, um, this shawl that was over mm. her. And so when he brought that shawl, that sense of fragility, and it was just so, it just, I felt it, you mm. know, just, it was so kind of eerie how, yeah. you know, that physicality is just so familiar. Yeah. Did you know the River Cafe has a shop? It's full of our favorite foods and designs. We have cookbooks, linen napkins, kitchenware, tote bags with our signatures, glasses from Venice, chocolates from Turin. You can find us right next door to the River Cafe in London or online at shoptherivercafe.co.uk. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. <laughs> you couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing. Right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle. And I'm an investigative reporter for the L.A. Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Hey, my name's Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan, and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. Growing up, you grew up in a hotel, is that right, for the first we grew up, Yeah, we lived in hotels till I was almost eight. My father was a hotel manager for Intercontinental mm-hmm. for, for my whole childhood um, until I was sort of 18. So we... I was born, I think we were at the Britannia when I was born. My dad was running the Britannia Hotel. And Here. Then, 
in London, yeah. And then um, the Mayfair. Is that Square? Yeah. 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 So there and then uh, the Mayfair. And then we moved to Germany, to Hanover and Dusseldorf. And he, he ran hotels there. And then we moved back to London. He ran... Uh, I can't remember the name of the hotel. Then he was at the Churchill in Portman Square. Oh. So he, he moved around those and he also ran hotels in Vienna and Frankfurt. Yeah. Did you, did you, but you actually lived in the hotel? We lived in the hotel till I was eight. Well, you were a bit like Eloise. Like, do you remember that book, Eloise? Yeah. Did you ever know that? Yeah. yeah. Growing up in the plaza. Yeah. Would you run around the hotels and oh, yeah. sort of find... What was that like living in a hotel? It was amazing. I mean, it was, you know, it was kind of all we knew. But now yeah. I look back on it, I think, oh, wow, that was kind of an extraordinary yeah. way to grow up. Um and my brother and I were certainly, we, you know, we would sort of roll around with the the maids, you know, going into people's rooms after they yeah. checked out and sort of, you know, I remember sort of sitting in the basket with all the sheets, you know, with my hands right. holding on, rolling yeah. around the corridor and, you know, sitting on with my whole body wrapped around a hoover, you know, going up and down the hallways. Um, Were you ordering room service or did you have a proper <laughs> No, we had, it was like, the, you know, they'll have a, they'll have a little, I mean, in, in with the place, the hotels that we lived in, the, a, a sort of an apartment mm. in the top floor for the manager. Um, and so we lived in a, yeah, mum talks about, I mean, we, we had our own little mini kitchen and stuff, but it was more... Yeah, we didn't do room service, but we did have our linen changed, I'm pretty yes, sure. So yeah. mum always says that was a massive bonus. I must have been living at the, on the job and being the manager yeah. and living there. Must yeah. have been, I mean, great for the hotel to have the manager there. Yeah. But for, are you one of many? Or are you? No, a, just me and my brother. Yeah. yeah. But we were bilingual because we moved to Germany when I was three and we went oh. to, you know, we learned German. We went to, I went to a, a German kindergarten uh, Rudolf Steiner kindergarten, yeah. oh, and then yeah. I went to uh, school in Hanover. We were with a lot of ex, you know, with military kids, and and then we were in Dusseldorf at in international school, yeah. and then we moved home. So we were there. We was <laughs> the only thing I remember about the kitchen because we were, yeah. you know, nowhere near the kitchen. Mm-hmm. That was not, and and I was saying earlier, my dad, you know, I think briefly worked in kitchens on his way. He worked his way up from kind of collecting glasses in a restaurant to to, to, being, the, the to being the manager. Yeah. Um, and he, so whenever he cooks, generally I exit the building <laughs> because it's just not. Um, well, what is it like? Why, he why? just likes things ordered mm-hmm. and the way that they, sh- and, you know, for us to sort of come in and sort of casually start munching on something he's hot is not, not part of it. So that, yeah, so it's, but I, my, my memory of one of my birthday parties when I was, Little was at the hotel in Dusseldorf and, you know, the the pastry chef made a bunch of dough and we were all making little dollies out of dough and then they took them off and cooked them in the kitchen and brought them back. Mm. And, um, and the birthday cakes, you know, when we lived in hotels were always, you know, those very elaborate kind of I feel like they always had liquor in them. They always had like a mm. bit of booze mm. in it. <laughs> yes, it wasn't, wasn't yeah. like properly kiddie birthday cakes and they had like very beautiful writing and mm. icing and all that kind of stuff there was always such a sense of occasion mm. in hotels it's always like there's a big display for christmas or there's a big you know it was like there was always a sort of sense of there's a sort of event happening mm. um but i always felt really i, I like being nomadic i don't yeah. mind you yeah. know i like being in hotels i'm not someone who i don't need to bring you know, some people sort of need to bring stuff with them yeah. to make wherever they Tracy are feel Elman, like home. You know, carries with her. Yeah. But do you know the only I mean, time I um, 
ate lunch here was with Tracy. Oh, was it? Yeah, yeah. with Tracy oh, and Mabel. Yeah. She described, you know, that she, I don't think she's ever ordered room service. She would always, you know, I'd go out and find something and take mm. her food on the plane or take an object. And mm. as you say, I, I love hotels so much that I actually don't like when I'm upgraded to a suite because mm. it reminds me too much of home. You know? Yeah, so yeah, yeah. <laughs> I like the confines of a yeah. hotel room. You can find everything. You know where your book is. You yeah. know where everything is. I always thought that maybe I'd be one of those women who age, you know, Richard and I being stay at Claridge's for the rest, you know, yeah. the rest of our days. I once said to him, if we sold our house, how many nights do you think we'd get in Claridge's? It was <laughs> like probably six. <laughs> yeah, you know? yeah. But, um, and, and do you think there was a performance that you had to behave in a certain way with strangers? I think so, that, yeah. 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 Yeah, we had, yeah. A, you know, we met people who were staying at the hotel sometimes mm. and... There was a real kind of, it did, it felt like being a bit of a, like a diplomat's daughter or something, you know, that yeah, exactly. someone would come and stay at the yeah. hotel and you would greet them, you know. Mm. Um, did that prepare you, do you think, for acting in, in a certain way? I think, yeah, perhaps. I think also moving around, constantly kind of being the new kid mm -hmm. and mm. meeting. So by the time I was eight, we'd moved, you know, I'd been at, a, I think, three places in Germany, um, Three or four schools, no, three, so nursery and then two schools and then home to a convent school in Buckinghamshire. And then when I was 11, I moved again. And then when I was 13, yeah, I moved again. So we were, so I think I was always kind of used to being new yeah. and having to introduce myself, adapt yeah, to yeah. people and, you know, yeah. that sort of thing. What was German food like? Do you have a memory of it? Or did you? Yeah, lots of um, quite meat-based meat, meat -based food. I mean, we, you know, we were amongst kind of lots of Brits as well. Yeah. So, um, But we spent, we, we were amazingly lucky. We got to go skiing in Austria in mm. our holidays and things. We, we, you know, spent lots of, we had lots of Käse, uh, Spätzl yeah. and, you know, yeah. Wiener Schnitzel and um, delicious, like, warm, brothy things to be able mm. to warm up. Um, but, yeah, I think we, you know, because it was also an international hotel, it was, you know, it wasn't, it, we were, if I was eating stuff from, it wasn't necessarily German cuisine or anything. I usually ask people about their families and growing up and restaurants, you mm. know, were restaurants. But in your case, I, I often ask if restaurants were a special occasion, mm. which was the truth in my family. We went mm. out to restaurants for somebody's birthday mm. and somebody's anniversary or something mm. great had happened and you'd celebrate in a restaurant here. Um, we see people just coming out for dinner with their kids all mm. the time. Mm. And uh, maybe it was just more for you that. Was that something that was just we part of your I life? Suppose, I suppose so. I don't really remember going to restaurants at all. I don't remember going to nice, you know, white tablecloth mm. restaurants ever with my... We would go to... There was a pizza place in Dusseldorf that we would go to, but like mm. a, a, a really a hole-in-the-wall kind of pizza mm. place, and that was sort of a treat that we would go there. Um, I don't think we went to, I remember what the, for the millennium, we, my dad was running the Intercontinental in Vienna and we, there was a big millennium meal there and I was 14 and 14, 15, I think. Yeah, 14. And, um, and my best friend came with me and we, we bought dresses, you know, for millennium and we sat and it was a proper white tablecloth, seven course meal thing. And that was very, that was a big, big deal. So I don't think we... Did necessarily. Although when I was when we moved home and we were living in, you know, Buckinghamshire, we used to go. If there was anything to celebrate, we'd go to Mr. Poon's, the Chinese yeah. restaurant, and go and have big Chinese. And we did that kind of for years. 
your parents cook for you? Yeah. I mean, mum's always, you know, she's she can turn her hand to anything. Yeah. But she was never a sort of passionate cook. I think yeah. because dad was the cook, yeah. really. So if there was meals that were cooked, it would be dad, mm. you know. Um, and mum. My, my grandmother was a was a wonderful baker. Was she? Was yeah, she? loved baker. baking. Yeah. So yeah. where did she live? So she was, uh, my mother's Welsh, so she was okay. in Carmarthenshire. Mm. Um, so, and I, every time I went to her for any kind of length of time, we would just bake and bake and bake. What would she make? Oh, well, everything. Welsh cakes, famously. Delicious Welsh cakes. Mm. What are Welsh um, cakes? They're like, don't tell Sean I asked you this because I've lived in this country for Well, you wouldn't necessarily have them if you is. weren't. But they're like... Yeah. They're little mini sort of flat cake with raisins in. Yeah. and Like a scone? Or yeah, like, like yeah. a sort of flatter scone. Yeah. Um, but she'd make amazing Welsh cakes. A cherry almond cake, a delicious cherry almond mm. cake that just got better the longer you left it in the mm. tin. Ah. You know, it was that yeah. kind of thing. I know that you're, you're from going from school, mm. you knew that acting was going to be an essential part of your life. Yeah. Uh, can you tell me how that happened? It was all I wanted to do from a young age, um, but I didn't think of it really as a a career until I was probably 12, mm-hmm. you know, maybe. Um, I wanted to do musical theatre. That was yeah. the big, you know, that's my mum and I went to go and see every musical. Mm-hmm. Um, every time we could go into London, we'd go and see musical. We went to New York together, just the two of us, and went and saw what did you see? Cabaret. We oh, saw, saw the original, Cabaret. the Sam Mendes yes. production at Studio yeah. 54. Yeah. We saw that. I told this to him the other day, but I saw Kevin Bacon in a one-man show at the Walter Kerr Theatre. I forget the name of it. Um, but I then later, years later, went and did The Seagull at the Walter Kerr, and it was oh. a really crazy kind of full circle thing. So I was, I was sort of wanted to do musical theatre, then was slowly sort of realising that that was quite a big job in terms of dance and song, and I wasn't a dancer, and I kind of was a choir singer, but not a singer-singer. Um, was not enormously interested in film so much. I mean, I loved mm. movies. Mm. I loved... You know, my favorite, all of my favorite films. Which ones were they? Like Indiana Jones and The Last Crusade. And, you know, I liked sort of Spielberg, like proper movies. And then I slowly realized that it was more kind of theater that I was probably just straight theater, just doing plays. So it was, it was when I was at, I auditioned for a bunch of drama schools basically um, and didn't get into any of them. But that was my first sort of big sort of, attempt to do to kind of make it a job um which didn't go very well but then but then I found another kind of way in luckily actually right around the corner from here to go to Riverside Studios to do Youngblood Theatre Workshop which was an amazing um I don't know if it still happens but it was it was an incredible experience it was once a week I did it for months where you would come together with a bunch of other actors of a similar age but I'd never acted really with boys before I'd only you know because I'd been an all-girls school school and for people from all different walks of life and and it was a lot of improvisation a lot of just you would just be sitting all in the circle on the floor and then you would suddenly have to be in the middle of the room doing a scene about something and and it was just a real I loved it and Mm. and made really good friends and we did I think one or two little productions there um and then I auditioned for a new version of Pride and Prejudice and that was my first job um, Is this when you were working in pubs? Did you did yeah. you have to have a job that wasn't? Yeah, I know. left school, uh, and that was you know I had not gone to drama school, so I was taking a gap year, and it was in that year that I worked in the pubs. Yeah, 
Yeah. Yeah. It Do was you remember great. the food and what you? It made? was like proper just pub yeah. food. Yeah. I mean, I worked on on a barge, um, like a restaurant sort of barge in Marlow, but I was serving. I was never mm. making. Um, and then I worked in two pubs at the same time, just picking up shifts in the in whichever one. Um, but I just liked I liked the sort of kind of energy of it. Mm. I think I also quite like being in charge of. Mm giving people drinks, yeah. <laughs> but I was behind this bar and I was 18. I probably looked about 15. Mm. Um, and yet I was sort of pulling pints for, you know, big burly mm. men. And it felt kind of like quite a powerful Good position to be in. Yeah. 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 It's, yeah. A, it's a performance, isn't it? Yeah. And acting and cooking. You know, I think the reason I always say that a lot of actors like to work, mm. of course, it suits them, mm. you know, to work part time in a restaurant or mm. if they're trying to pursue their career. Mm. Um, is that there's a lot of drama in a restaurant? Yeah, and, and the energy and in the as kitchen well. at home. Yeah. Do you remember what you ate in those years? When I talked to Emily Blunt, it was you know hamburger after hamburger after <laughs> hamburger, and yeah. eating and eating and eating. She ate so yeah. You know, she would describe even when she had small parts that she would have two hamburgers before going on stage and, yeah. and, you know, being in school. But do you remember when you were away from, or did you live with your parents when you were I didn't. I'm, I'm Pride and Prejudice, I moved out for that job. And I do remember that we were all in corsets. And I remember yeah. for the first, and it was a very lovely production. It actually set me up for disappointment in future productions because it was so, we stayed in such nice mm. hotels and the catering mm. was so lovely. And, and I remember for the first month or so we had like really delicious what like snacks but you know yummy cakes and biscuits and like delicious granolary things that we could nibble on and after a while they had to take out our costumes <laughs> because we'd all and our corsets had to get sort of loosened a bit because we'd all been having a lovely time um and then I moved into a flat with two boys in Highgate and I think I ate you know literally pot noodles whilst yeah. I did theatre um I also got into a habit of having to have a double espresso before I did a show. I didn't eat really before the play. I did a theater, I did a play at the Royal Court straight after. Which one was uh, that? It was called Forty Winks. It was a Kevin mm. Elliott play. It was a real shock for me because it went. You know, it was Pride and Prejudice was a summer of, you know, mm. real kind of sort of basically a massive party. We had mm. the best time, and I and I and I was delighted. It was Royal Court is my favorite theater yeah. in the world, hands down, ten million times. But I was playing a narcolepsy a girl with narcolepsy who also might have been a victim of rape. I mean, it was mm. it was really kind of harrowing mm. and and in a very kind of surrounded by real heavyweight, mm. incredible actors. And I suddenly thought, oh my gosh, this is mm. not what I I don't know mm. how to do this at mm. all. But it was I was in real kind of just yeah just theatre And you mode. would have an espresso. The espresso started then, the espresso yeah. before yeah. before the plays. So yeah, and have... I did that for years through theatre, until yeah. probably until I did Girls and Boys. Yeah, and, and I stopped. I, well, I'd love to talk about because that, that, the Royal Court is actually our local theatre yeah. because we live further down the King's yeah. Road. What, what makes you love a theatre? I mean, I think that was my first theatre, so that was special. Mm. Um, I, then I went back there and did the... Seagull when I was 21 um, with Christopher Hampton, Ian Rickson and um, and that was just completely, I just, that that role, everything about it, I just, and I feel like I kind of, I don't know, there was something about the, the pre-show thing. I would go underneath the 
I'd go down all the way down to the bottom of the stairs, all the way back up again. I'd run around like a mad woman before. So because when Nina comes on, she's really out of breath and I wanted to be genuinely out of breath. So I would run around and then I would sort of burst onto stage at the last minute. And um, the, the smell of it, I don't know, there's just so much about that theatre. Every time I step in there, I just mm. feel, oh, I just love it. I love it too. Yeah. And do, so you would have your espresso before the play mm. and then... And then afterwards, would you do that thing of going out to dinner with a bunch of friends, people who'd seen the play? And Sometimes, I mean, most, what I also love about the Royal Court is the downstairs mm-hmm. bar. So yeah. I'd always just go down there mm-hmm. afterwards, and we all mm-hmm. would, yeah. you know. Um, uh, I don't remember eating. I remember I remember eating cornichons, little cornichons, yeah. a glass of red yeah. wine and, corn, you know, just yeah. loads of little cornichons. Um, back then, uh, but I don't remember... Going out for food much. I just sort of think I'd probably just go home and eat Weetabix or something at the end of the night, you know. Was money an issue? Yeah, at that time, yeah. It was, um, you know, it's... It was the minimum wage theatre, mm. um, so it was, and I was spending money on living in Highgate, living mm. in, you know, paying rent up there. So um, it wasn't, yeah. It was. It, I was. I ate quite a lot of cereal. Do you remember when food became a kind of measure of your success that you could say, I can afford to eat well now because I'm um, earning more money? Yeah, I think I got really into sushi when I lived in New Did York. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and I was. Um, I was living in New York probably, what was I doing? I was doing theatre there, but I was also doing a bit of film. I was doing, I did the film Steve McQueen called mm-hmm. Shame. Yeah. And, um, and I remember, uh, I remember sitting down with, you know, my, with a financial advisor sort of figuring out working in America and working in, he looked at my <laughs> bank statements mm-hmm. and he said, oh, you seem to have spent lots of money on, Rent and sushi. Yeah. <laughs> I was like, oh, that's pretty good. That's what we did when we lived in Paris. It was the same thing. We, but in those days, you had checkbooks, and we used to look in our checkbook at the end of the month with the yeah. list stubs. Yeah. And basically, it was all restaurants. Yeah. And, uh, when yeah. we weren't working, we were just eating out, yeah. and exploring. Because you do learn about a culture through the food, too, yeah. don't you? Yeah. yeah. If you like listening to Ruthie's Table Four. Would you please make sure to rate and review the podcast on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you. We started talking about this incident. Drugs and uh, officials cover up. (laughs) You couldn't believe it. From iHeart Podcasts. It's like the police knew who he was before they got here. A story about money, power, and corruption. The medical school dean at USC was leading a secret double life. He's breathing right now? Yes, he's absolutely breathing. I'm a doctor, actually. There's no way that that guy's a doctor. I'm Paul Pringle, and I'm an investigative reporter for the LA Times. This is the story of an investigation that starts in a hotel room in Pasadena, California, and reaches all the way to the top of two of the most powerful institutions in the city of Los Angeles. When people fall in line, they fall in line. Looking back, I realized, oh, everyone knew. This is Fallen Angels, the story of California corruption. We're always going to have predators. It's the good people who stand by and do nothing that allow them to flourish. Listen to Fallen Angels, a story of California corruption, on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts.
Hey, my name is Jay Shetty and I'm the host of On Purpose. I just had a great conversation with Michael B. Jordan and you can listen to it right now. Michael is known for his performances in both film and television. His breakout role was in Fruitvale Station, playing Oscar Grant, which earned him widespread praise and numerous award nominations. His portrayal of Killmonger in Marvel's Black Panther, one of my favorites, further solidified his status as one of Hollywood's leading actors, earning him widespread acclaim for his complex and compelling performance. In our conversation, Michael really opens up. You're going to love listening to it, and I can't wait for you to check it out. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. It's always the feeling when you're getting ready to, you know, people give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. People quit. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcast, or wherever you get your podcasts. For a moment, I'd like to talk about War Child, and I think that we see the effects of war, and we're seeing it right now, aren't mm. we? We're seeing mm. it every day, and I think was wondering what you feel about how that how war child affected your your views of children in poverty children in danger mm. and food insecurity mm. so i was doing skylight and i was i would i had this sort of you know i have a little routine that i largely stick to is i go into a theater at sort of 5 eat then have a nap for 20 minutes, 25 minutes, power nap, and then I wake up and I have my coffee and then I get ready for the show. But I would listen to the Six O'Clock News every night. Um, and that summer of 2014 was was terrible for children in conflict and that a lot of the news was about. What was happening in 2014? Um, was that the, it was when the Yazidis were escaping ISIS and there were there was a lot of coverage and lots of images on the news I remember seeing on the news as well. All the Yazidi refugees were on Sinjar Mountain and they were being evacuated. And and I remember seeing images of, you know, mums and dads with their babies flinging them into the helicopter to, to try and get, a, you know, someone to take the baby. Um, and I didn't have kids then, but I, I, but I remember thinking, I cannot imagine what it takes for you to think... In this moment, I'm just going to hurl my baby into someone, a stranger's, you know, and hope that they are even caught. Um, and what must that take to be in that? And I was just thinking about it a lot, um, as everyone was. And my brother had been in Afghanistan um, and he had encountered this girls' school um, that had been shut down by the Taliban and he'd raised on his own lots of money um, to help this school reopen so the girls could go back to school. And he had written to a bunch of different NGOs asking for help kind of facilitating this. And Warchild were the only ones that had written back and made it very easy and said, well, we, we don't need a commission and we'll just, we'd love to do this and help. And so he had come back from Afghanistan saying like, this charity is really interesting and really cool. So I went to the Democratic Republic of Congo that October and we went around and saw the projects that they were doing, met the children they worked with. Um, and at the end of that week, I said, I'd really love to mm. kind of focus on this. And so they asked me to be an ambassador. I went to the Ukraine with them in 2022, at the end of that year. Mm. Did you feel that children were yeah were hungry? Yeah, very. Were... I mean, it's so different in country to country. So in the Democratic Republic of Congo, the thing that I noticed was how 
I mean, one of the camps that we went to um, was an IDP camp, internally displaced people, and they were, I mean, it was one of the worst places I've ever, I mean, it was a really, really awful, awful camp, and two children there, the week that we visited, had died of malnutrition, mm. uh, of, you know, uh, had starved to death, basically. It's definitely a huge issue in some countries. In some, you know, I, I, we were in, when we were in Budapest, we met some Roma refugee children who were living in a, uh, in a homeless shelter. They had fled the Ukraine, their homes had been destroyed, and they were now living in this sort of homeless shelter and, mm. in Budapest. And there it was, you know, they were having food provided, but it was food that they had no connection to. Yeah. They had no, so the children wouldn't eat. You know, it was yeah. that you can't make a child yeah. eat something. They've yeah. grown up their entire life having the, they've, and these women who were in the shelter, they said, all we want is a kitchen. We just want to be able to make food. And their little three-year-olds are just rejecting because they're just, first of all, traumatized. But secondly, they've got no, so there was, there was food available, but it was packaged bought in kind of, you know, for them to be able to make food that was familiar and comfortable and inexpensive, but yeah. something that just for them to be able to provide their own. And also for these women who are also suffering their own trauma, to, for the ritual of cooking together as a family, for that to be something that they could do yeah. um, community-wise, I think, you know, would have been such a powerful yeah. kind of healer for them. Well, it is, isn't it? You know, yeah. In times of... Um, yeah, and a communicator. Trouble. When we were in Ukraine, we cooked with Did these you? women in this in the shelter, yeah, yeah. and you know, we I couldn't speak any. No. You know, we were completely. You know, we had an interpreter, but really, it was just peeling yeah. potatoes together, and yeah. you know, yeah. it's a wonderful way to communicate with someone. Yeah. That story you told of the woman throwing her child into the helicopter. I remember Richard and I were living in Paris in the seventies. We mm. met someone who's grandmother mm. had knew that the you know the nazis were coming to take them away from the jewish ghetto in paris and she said that she mm. her grandmother and her mother were on one side of the barricade mm. getting on a train to towards auschwitz mm. and they saw, the nanny came rushing for them to mm. see because she'd come home and saw them gone and they threw her Oh. They just threw her. Phys I mean, throwing a child is quite a big thing. Yeah. And then Natty caught her, and she never saw her parents again. No. You know? So we we think about you know the lack of food being denial for children, mm. the lack of food being hunger, food being a sign of illness, or mm. when you're illness that you're cutting yourself off from food and mm. whatever you know, and a sign of frailty. It's also it can work the other way, which is food is joyous mm. when we cook for our children. It's mm. fun when you cook with, I hope, a chef. It's mm. fun when your family and your husband are there in their farm mm. um, wanting to eat. Maybe you've grown or maybe you've shopped for. It also is in times, it's comfort. Mm. It's comfort from an emotion. It's emotional eating that we mm. don't always eat when we're hungry. We eat when we feel something. Mm. So I, my last question to you on this beautiful day mm. and being here with you and thanking you for coming is to say, Carrie Mulligan, if you need comfort, which mm. I hope you don't, mm. I hope life is just one joyous experience, but if you need comfort, is there a food that you would reach for? Yeah, my husband makes, well, so when I was had my first child, we have a friend who lives near us who's sort of a baby guru um, mm. called Rachel Waddlelove. She's amazing, and she basically taught us how to... Um, look after babies <laughs> well me at least yeah. my husband was quite good at it already um and she said when you're breastfeeding must have you know a slice of cake 
mm-hmm. you know, all the time. Um, oh. But also this, she had this recipe for this chicken casserole. Oh. Um, and it was just really simple. But the crust on the top was Weetabix and cheddar cheese really? mixed Weetabix. together. Really? Yeah. Really? And so okay. Marcus makes this delicious oh, Marcus, that's casserole. And it's, it's so yummy. And it's just chicken and veg and whatever. But the crust is Weetabix mm. mushed up with a bit of salt and cheddar cheese. Mm. And it melts and it's heaven. And whenever I'm feeling like a little bit depleted yeah. or done in, yeah. he'll make that. And we'll, he'll make a big old thing of it and... <laughs> and we'll start with like fairly conservative portions and then just finish the just whole finish thing. The whole yeah, thing it's perfect. Okay, well, thank you very much. It was a great, thank great time you so with much. you. And now you're going to go have scallops yes. or whatever there is in the River Cafe. Yeah, amazing. We'll thank do you. more together. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you for listening to Ruthie's Table 4 in partnership with Montclair. Ruthie's Table 4 is produced by Atomai Studios for iHeartRadio. It's hosted by Ruthie Rogers and it's produced by Willem Malensky. This episode was edited by Julia Johnson and mixed by Nigel Appleton. Our executive producers are Faye Stewart and Zad Rogers. Our production manager is Caitlin Paramore and our production coordinator is Bella Cellini. This episode had additional contributions by Sean Wynne Owen. Thank you to everyone at the River Cafe for your help in making this episode. Hey, I'm Jay Shetty, and I'm the host of the On Purpose podcast, and I had the opportunity to talk to one of Hollywood's major icons, Michael B. Jordan. In our conversation, Michael shares the highs, the lows, and everything in between, offering a genuine glimpse into his world. The closest to getting what you want is always the hardest. People give up right before they get what they've always wanted to get. Listen to On Purpose with Jay Shetty on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you ask two people the same seven questions. I'm Minnie Driver, and this was the idea I set out to explore in my podcast, Mini Questions. This year, we bring a whole new group of guests to answer the same seven questions, including Courtney Cox, Rob Delaney, Liz Fair, and many, many more. Join me on season three of Mini Questions on the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you get your favorite podcasts. Seven questions, limitless answers.